0: Hello and welcome to the Cucumber Podcast. I'm Steve Took and I'm joined today by Matt Wynn and Aslak Hellasoy. We're talking with John Smart about Serenity BDD. Hi, John. Hi there. So uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh,
1: So in a nutshell, I help organizations deliver better software by more effective collaboration and communication techniques. So In a nutshell, doing BDD well and extending the ideas of BDD to the business, to the whole organization, and uh, also extending it down into the technical sphere through better technical practice. So I do a lot of training, mentoring, speaking in the BDD space on advanced test automation practices. And uh, I wrote a book called BDD in Action, and I'm also the lead developer of uh, Serenity.
0: So, John, you're um, running a workshop at QCUP in London in uh, on the 14th of April. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your workshop, please? Uh, so, it's actually on
1: a totally different topic to Serenity. It's uh, about product planning. Uh, what I see in a lot of organisations is that they'll theoretically on paper be doing Scrum. It's all good. They'll get their clogged They'll have a backlog of a few hundred stories. So far, so good. Uh, so, we'll have stories at different levels of size and granularity and uh, relative value and so forth. And what they'll do is they'll measure progress by the number of stories they achieve, number of stories they finish. And so, their entire Reporting and value metric is how many stories, what is the number? We said we'd deliver 10 stories this sprint? have we delivered 10 stories? And they'll lose focus on whether they're actually being delivering features, whether they're actually delivering useful, deliverable value. And what this tends to do is it encourages teams, since it's uh, all about gaming the system, everybody wants to game the system, if you're judged on the fact that you said you deliver 10 stories or 20 stories or 70 stories or whatever, and then you'll naturally look for the fastest way to deliver those stories. And you'll get uh, what we call a local optimization, but a global uh, sub optimization, where you'll find the fastest way to deliver the least useful stories. Without actually delivering, it, but but at the same time delaying delivering the uh, the actual business value. So, what the workshop is about is a number of techniques uh, that uh, look at product planning from a slightly different perspective, from a higher uh, to a higher point of view, and take into account rather than thinking in terms of what stories you want to deliver, what features and capabilities you want to deliver. Uh, looking at the uh, breadth first rather than a local optimization approach when you're trying to figure out what scenarios you want to deliver. We'll be looking at an approach called Backlog Bingo, which is a way of helping stakeholders actually put a dollar value on how much it would cost to deploy a feature rather than how much it costs to implement a story. And uh, helping uh, look at some techniques to help business and product owners make uh, rational trade-offs between features they want delivered.
2: It's often a thing I see teams get lost in where they have, they have a desire to have small stories, but then they recognize that small stories are good because they flow through the team well, but then they get lost in the, like, in the weeds. It's hard for them to see the big picture and still work with small pieces. So I think the more techniques for, for sort of how seeing how that all hangs together are really good. Um, as long as they don't end up with those stories that are like, as a user, I want to see a first name field so that I can fill in my first name on the form. I've seen that too. Yes.
3: <laughs> so I think that's, that's one of the dilemmas with, with a uh, language like Gherkin, you know, it's, it's English or at least some kind of, some sort of pidgin English, uh, which is great because it gives people a lot of flexibility in how they express things but that's also a double-edged sword that also makes it really hard for people to to express things well i guess it's like it's like writing in general it's hard to it's hard to express things uh in a good way but do you have any sort of guidelines for people um for writing gherkin
1: i have a lot of them so <laughs> top three it's uh, the actual writing gherkin uh, I'd say there you've got to get the uh, pitch right. So no, it's basically about the level of abstraction. So if you do it too high level, which I find people tend not to, uh, if you do it at too high, then it's not actionable. You can't actually do anything with it. If it's at a too lower level, then you get into the UI-centric uh, story. So I find a good tip, uh, a red flag is if there are any UI interactions, it's... Uh, it's usually too low level. So you want to take it up a notch. And the way, the thing I tell to testers, who say yes, but how are we going to say that we need a first name and a last name? Uh, The way I reassure testers when they ask that is when they, if they're running the test through Serenity anyway, they're going to get that reporting at the end of the day. They'll, They'll see what the screens look like and they'll see the sub steps and the action and the interactions, all that gets reported. So they don't need to worry about that. They can sort of let go of that and sort of focus on what value they're trying to deliver. So that would be one of the top tips is avoid any UI interactions in the GERC and and make sure it is focused on delivering business value. Uh, And there are a few variations on how to do that. One of what you were saying earlier is a good one about avoiding it being too long because if it's too long, it tends to be much more detail-focused to not... uh, Lose, and you can lose sight of the essence of what you're trying to deliver. Uh, but I'd say that would be the single most important one, based on a lot of the way I see people writing scenarios.
3: Well, I have another question. What was it that first attracted you to to BDD? Where, where did you come from? What, what you know? What was what did you, what were you trying to what were you trying to fix for yourself and for
1: for others? Uh, I've always been a big fan of expressive tests, so I was uh, doing TDD before it. Uh, had a name, I think. I did actually my first, what I would call BDD was way before BDD existed, except it wasn't with Cucumber or anything, obviously. Uh, it was back when I was working with an insurance company and uh, in France back in the late 90s, I think. And uh, insurance companies, and in France in particular, have very complicated ways of calculating how, how much you have to pay so this was the car insurance company so you'd have to tell them where you lived and whether what sort of car you had and what color it was and what sort of dog you had and uh, all sorts of details uh,
3: complicated details and they they usually want a a handwriting sample as well so they can analyze your handwriting
1: yes (laughs) all of that sort of stuff and so one of one thing that I stumbled across when I was talking to the product owner, uh, which wasn't called a product owner at the time, he was a client or a customer, was he had this Excel spreadsheet that he was using by himself to check to check the algorithms on the mainframe that we were supposed to be reproducing. And so I said, "Hey, maybe that could be useful. Maybe we could use that to drive our tests. And so... That effectively, what we ended up with was a set of unit tests being driven by an Excel spreadsheet and producing a report, uh, another Excel spreadsheet, which had red and green rows in it uh, to say whether the application produced the right uh, premiums, which is basically all they cared about. They didn't really care very much about how pretty the website was. They wanted the numbers to come up right. And so that was my first foray into what you'd call BDD or... Uh, acceptance test driven development or I'm not sure whether uh, Kent Beck had written about acceptance test driven development at the time. He probably had, but I hadn't read it. Uh, But it was very early on and ever since then I've always been looking for ways to write tests that uh, express things at the business level. And so when I came across BDD,
0: uh, it sort of all fell into place. So when you're talking about your... um... Your Q Cup talk, John. You mentioned um, backlog bingo. Did you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: So backlog bingo. So, a review the classic uh, XB game planning poker is fairly commonly used uh, for at a story level. So, uh, lets you estimate the relative size to deliver stories. So that's fairly well known. Uh, backlog, bing, backlog bingo is basically a way of generalising planning poker. Uh, to a feature level rather than a story level, and thinking in terms of dollar investment and relative return on value, rather than just uh, story points. So it's a way of engaging with the product owners and uh, in a more at a higher level rather than just at the story level, getting them thinking about what is going to be the return on investment for particular features. How much is it relatively? How much is it going to cost? Is it going to, with, uh, for instance, you you take three previously delivered and deployed features uh, where you have a reasonable idea of how much they cost not only to build but actually to d- deploy and get into production, and you compare the features that you've got coming up with them to uh, uh, get a relative idea of how much they're going to cost to, to deploy. So, again, it's all about getting... Uh, stakeholders and product owners and teams to think, uh, take take things up a notch in the, reply, the uh, planning sessions and think in terms of return on investment features that you can deliver rather than just at a story level, which I find can get very, uh, uh, a bit too granular sometimes.
0: And I guess once you're starting to see what the return on investment is, you get an idea of uh, what the investment might be, and you, you get to start creatively thinking about how you can reduce the cost of developing that feature set. What things you can do to get a similar return for doing less work, for example. Exactly. It
1: also it definitely opens up the way to thinking about that because if you know that uh, you know what a feature is worth in rough monetary terms, uh, it does open up a lot of very interesting
2: conversations about how you want to implement it and how much effort you want to put into it or not. Do you you find that trying to get business people to explore um, what their estimate would be for the value helps to sort of generate a bit more empathy towards software developers who are also asked to try and predict the future?
1: Now, you just... uh raise one of my pet words which is empathy one of the big things i try and get in teams is to build to encourage empathy between product owners and stakeholders and development teams and vice versa which i find goes a long way to smoothing uh, smoothing the relationships and making it easier to negotiate features and have sensible conversations about what is useful to deliver and what's less useful and so yeah, those, it's all about getting those conversations. So it's like, the, it is the BDD concept of, uh, it's all about the conversation, taking it a notch up and uh, talking. I mean, estimates are always hard, but it's real where, again, we're talking about the conversations around the estimates is just as valuable as the estimates themselves in a lot of ways.
2: Well, that's the thing we forget is that software's made by people. And that if the people are getting along, I, I, yeah, I read something recently that like the the software we build is just uh, a reflection of the the models that we've all got in our heads as a team. And if the way we communicate as a team is is messy and unpleasant, then that model is also going to be messy and unpleasant. That means that the the uh, the software asset that's being built for the business is going to be messy and you know hard to maintain in the long run. I like to think of it in
1: terms of. Uh... You know when you get into the flow and you're sort of super productive and heart focused on what you're doing and highly concentrated and so forth, uh, if you can get the team into that state into that same feeling, then you're going to multiply the producti- productivity by orders of magnitude. Uh, that's the sort of uh, it's all about uh, facilitating the communication, smoothing building up that empathy. Getting people working smoothly together, getting people to be open to, to discussion. If you can get that going, then you can get, that's where you get uh, rock star teams, not just rock star individuals, but rockstar star teams. And I think that's much more powerful than uh, even one rock star individual on a team.
2: Yeah, definitely. It multiplies up with with the number of people. We've been talking about this a bit recently. And like, one of the things we were reflecting on is that the, the effect that you get from that situation of a, of a rock star team is you, you get this wonderful feeling of certainty that like the the ideas that you have will be able to be turned into software reliably by this team that because there's a huge amount of uncertainty around in software we're turning fuzzy ideas into concrete code over and over again and we're, de- we're just dealing with uncertainty all the time and that that effect of having a team that's sort of Reliably able to grind up the uncertainty and turn it into features, I think it's it's really, yeah, it's really um, liberating. Anyway, we're just having like a back-slapping session. <laughs> <laughs> we need to challenge John some more. Uh,
3: I Have a question for you, John. It's a bit of a soapbox slash uh, question, I guess. But those of you who've been, those of us who've been around uh, the BDD community since the start, which is now about ten years ago, we know that this started out as a a developer practice, right? Um, it was it was really meant to bridge the communication gap between developers and business, um, helping people to do TDD, which is development, um, in a better way. And and Dan North, who invented BDD, came up with a whole new, basically, vocabulary around TDD, just to get that idea to people's head. But then. Testers discovered BDD and want to be part of the process, which is fantastic. Um, but I see a lot of confusion, and this is where my question comes in, I see a lot of confusion about what the tester's role are in BDD. Um, what do you think it is? What, how, can, how can testers, traditional QA, manual testers, um, be, become part of, of, of the process uh, in a way that's valuable to everyone on the team?
1: Uh, testers, I think, have a huge role to play, but not necessarily in the way people think. Uh, what I find with uh, testers is in traditional, even scrum Scrum teams, where they still have a traditional mindset where it is the testers will test what's been delivered, they're not failing to leverage what the testers can actually contribute in their critical thinking. Testers have this wonderful ability to... Uh, to rubbish your ideas and find flaws. That's sort of what they're good at. So if you get leverage at the start, that's what the whole Three Amigos idea is about, getting the testers involved in rubbishing the requirements and playing devil's advocate and trying to spot flaws or potential issues before they become real ones. So I think that's the first really important role that testers have to play. The, uh, the other aspect is sort of counterintuitively I find that testers may or may not be the best people to write the actual automation, depending on the team. Sometimes they're good at automation. Uh, Sometimes they're more familiar with manual testing and they've only got a relatively... uh, They're maybe a little bit unfamiliar with uh, the intricacies of coding, of development. Maybe they've just done scripting. And in that case, uh, you can get the testers to pair with developers to do the actual automation And then again, the testers will add their DevOps advocate perspective when you're actually doing the automation to make sure that the testers, the tests, the automated tests are actually being implemented in a a sensible way and testing what, checking what should be checked. If you get your automation act together, then you're actually freeing up your testers to do work that actually requires intelligence, which what you're testing in an automated way usually doesn't. So the idea is you're going to get higher value, higher quality testing.
3: So a lot of the organisations that we see, and I guess a lot of the organisations you see as well, um, p- uh, developers and testers uh, are working in silos. Developers write the code; they don't they don't write any any automated tests, uh, and they throw the code over the wall after the after the sprint's done to the testers who do manual testing. And now somebody in the organisation realizes that this is very expensive, so. There's this, there's this whole program of changing the organization uh, into using test automation, but now you have how, how do you, how do you achieve that because the developers don't have any test automation experience and the, and the testers don't have any test automation experience and they're not used to working together like how, how do you, what's your how do you get uh, organizations started on this
1: journey What I find is that uh, you can teach the mechanics of test automation to to developers fairly easily, they're developers, it's just another form of development, so teaching, uh, I'm depending on, I can teach uh, how to do test automation with Serenity in two or three days, that's not a not a big deal for developers. Testers it may take a bit longer because you need to introduce some of the uh, basically development skills. But what I find is really the underlying thing is getting the testers and the developers to actually talk to each other and be a little bit less siloed. That's where you get your leverage. But I do like you, know, I do find organizations where they're still their official policy is still they're going to outsource all their testing to India, in which case you you're kind of limited in your options. So your only real option in if they're dead set on outsourcing their testing or siloing the testing is to get make sure the testers can write really good tests and get them communicating virtually as much as possible and as early as possible, even if it's uh, uh, remote communication. You still need to get that communication feedback loop going. Otherwise, you just not get you won't get any benefit from the automation other than those regression tests.
0: So, could you tell us a little bit about Serenity?
1: Uh, Serenity is what's technically called Serenity BDD, because Serenity is a spaceship, I think. Uh, Serenity is an open source library that well, does a number of things. It looks at your tests when you execute your tests, observes what they do, records them, and then produces living documentation out of the, the screenshots and the steps of the seeds that you execute. So it's effectively a living documentation and reporting tool that also adds very strong support for WebDriver. It gives you a lot of the basic WebDriver support that normally you'd end up writing yourself in if you're doing a handwriting. So uh, effectively, you could call it a BDD testing framework that goes on top of things like JUnit or Cucumber or JBehave, whatever takes your fancy, and it can be useful to help teams write tests more consistently more effectively and say faster and to provide the faster feedback to come from the living documentation
2: because we see a lot of teams getting sort of mired up in um spending time developing their own frameworks or not uh structuring their test code very well and ending up with a bit of a mess so serenity is something that teams who are like particularly, I guess starting a new project with um, where they're using Cucumber JVM, say um, they can use Serenity between Cucumber and their application to help give some structure to that test automation code that they're building.
1: So absolutely, uh, we we do a lot of work with Cucumber and Serenity these days. There are a lot of teams that obviously the, the more evolved teams that are uh, working with BDD and the whole collaboration defining the acceptance criteria with Cucumber uh, work, they really like Serenity for that reason because it does write a lot of the boilerplate code, a lot of the underlying infrastructure and just lets them focus on the business steps and implementing the step definitions and not have to worry about uh, all the intricate web driver details or if they're doing REST support, it also integrates with uh, with REST so you can do your REST calls for the back end and so forth. And what we found is that for a very long time, Serenity had built-in support for page objects. Uh, so you could you didn't have to invent your own implementation of the page objects pattern. It gave you some nice shortcuts to do that. And But more recently, we've started using a pattern called the screenplay uh, pattern, uh, which is an approach which basically applies uh, solid design principles to page objects and uh, helps you write much more structured, much more fluent, uh, much more easy to maintain tests. Uh, effectively, what you end up doing is manipulating your tests, manipulating domain objects, domain tasks and uh, act- interactions, writing your tests in, term- in business terms, and bu- writing building blocks that testers can assemble uh, in their step definitions. Uh, So we find it's a really nice way of getting tests where you've got a team of mixed levels of testers, so people who don't necessarily all have a very deep developer background, that's a great way to get them up and running really quickly and still maintain a reasonable quality across your test base.
3: I have a question. When we go and visit teams that use Cucumber, we come across a lot of teams that um, use Cucumber almost exclusively, uh, together with tools like Selenium, to just to... um, to, to interact with their application through the UI, what we almost inevitably find is that after a while, uh, those teams they have a lot of they spend a lot of effort um, maintaining their cucumber scenarios because they're very brittle because the UI keeps changing all the time. What are your thoughts about this? Uh, about testing through the UI? Uh,
1: I think it's the classic answer is you avoid it where you uh, where you can. I find that when you go into a teams, like you, a lot, I've seen a lot of organizations where their first reflex is to go to the web testing because that's how they do it manually. And so it does take a bit of experience to say, okay, well, let's not get to this point in the workflow application where you have to promote a task through three or four stages through the UI. Let's just inject it into the database in that state to start with. Uh, it takes a bit of developer skills and collaboration with the developers uh, to get to that point uh, so the, it's a much more collaborative approach when you do that but it's what I try and get teams to, to do uh, what we do with uh, serenity in that approach is uh, since the tests themselves reason in terms of business tasks you'll say given I had a given I had four items in four books in the shopping trolley so that's going to be what you write in your uh, your step definition. You'll have in your test code, you might have something like ASLAC adds four books to the test tr- to the shopping trolley. Now that could be a UI interaction or that could be a, a call to a web service. So we like to keep the step definition totally neutral of any UI interaction at that level. And then under the hood, we can fine tune it so that we can decide if it's in a given, maybe all the givens will do rest calls and all the... Uh, whens and thens will do actual web interactions, for example. But it's all about the layers of abstraction. So you make sure the layer, the step definitions, never contain any references to UI to give you that flexibility of deciding when and how you want to interact with the UI.
3: I completely agree with you. I think keeping stuff abstract, uh, or not letting the, the, the user interface details leak into scenarios, is, is a really, really good advice. Um, What's your experience getting this message across to people who might be new to, um, to Cucumber and Test Automation?
1: What I find is that I did have a problem like this recently where the uh, test manager, we wanted to do a basically a shortcut approach and say, okay, you're testing this phase in a workflow process. All you're really interested in is that given a, a task is at a particular state in the workflow when you do this, then you should go into this other task, into this other state. The test, uh, the test manager's approach was, okay, well, since in the real world, it, the task would float through the UI and take about 15 minutes to get into that stage, that's how we'll do it with the automation. And so it did take a bit of persuasion and some four-hour test suites to bring them around to the conclusion that maybe that wasn't the optimal way to do it. What I The approach I like to take is to explain that when you've got a UI test, what are you actually testing? Are you testing the UI interaction? Are you illustrating how the user uses the system for a particular scenario, or are you illustrating business logic? And usually you only really need a UI test for the first two cases. You want, if you're testing something that is a UI logic, then... You're going to need a UI test because you can't do it any other way. If you're illustrating how the system works and you want living documentation with screenshots to say, "Okay, this is how you add a book to the shopping cart," or "This is how you promote a task," then it's nice to have UI principles. If you're saying, "Here is the table of how tasks should be promoted through the system in different uh, coming from different states," then there's no need for a UI. Uh, UI support there. You can do it directly in the back end, as long as you've got a UI that shows the general flow through the system. So if you can get that message across, you can drastically cut down the number of uh, UI tests. But I find sometimes teams do have to go through the pain of having a four or five hour test suite and realizing that it's not necessarily op- the optimal way to go, because it's just a, once you've got one test, it goes through the UI. It's just too easy to do five or 10 other variations that also go through the UI.
0: So, could you give us an example of um, how a team using Serenity might get getting from a story to writing the tests to writing the code? How that process works using Serenity?
1: There are. I find that teams, depending on the level of maturity, will use Serenity in two ways. It's probably true of Selenium as well. Uh, if they're still in a relatively immature state of sort of BDD maturity, so to speak where they still may be testing, writing their automated tests, thinking that their automated tests are really regression tests and writing them after the implementation. Uh, in that case, they're going to specify the acceptance criteria, but they'll probably just be fleshing out the acceptance criteria after the after the story's been implemented. Uh, the message I try and get across is if you're doing that this way, you're losing all the, half of the benefit of uh, test automation because you're not getting that fast feedback. So you're losing a lot of the return on investment that you get if you'd implemented them earlier, but uh, some teams do have to, again, it's a journey, they have to go through the process of starting off doing tests slowly and then pushing it earlier on into the process. Uh, When you automate tests, uh, write automated tests as regression tests, typically you'd be probably using something like JUnit, and what I find is that using Serenity the code that you write with JUnit tends to look very much like the code you'd write with Cucumber anyway, because you will still have given, when, thens if you write it correctly. And then you'll start to build up a library of reusable business tasks and interactions that you can use for subsequent tests. So you get a sort of learning curve where you at the start of the project, you'll start to build your basic uh, interactions and business tasks that you need to interact with the system. And then as you start to add more stories, you'll end up with dramatically less tasks. You add, new tasks you have to add, and you'll end up with doing variations on the themes of tasks that you've already got. Uh, when you move to a more BDD-style approach where you are actually automating uh, upfront, then typically your uh, acceptance criteria, you'll start to automate them relatively early, even if you flag them as pending. So you you can flag them in Cucumber as work in progress or pending. In Serenity, it will appear as a pending test, but you'll still have the steps that you need to do it so you see what it's supposed to do. Uh, And the nice thing about that approach is that Serenity, uh, in its reports, one of the things it does uh, beyond just being a test reporting tool is that it reports on what I call feature coverage. The idea of feature coverage is that A test report will tell you what tests have been executed, but what you're really interested in is what features have been verified and what features haven't been verified. So, feature coverage is the idea that in a particular sprint, you've got a certain number of features that you want to implement. How many of them have you got working acceptance criteria against, and how many haven't you got working acceptance criteria? And so, in your life cycle, you'll end up starting off with a large number of features which are listed as uh pending work in progress and gradually that will get greener and greener as the sprint goes on
0: can you explain a little bit more about um the integration with say cucumber when you use serenity where where you integrate it and and how how it fits into your 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 sprint process uh it so you write your well you'll start off
1: with your requirements at the start of your sprint You'll do maybe an example mapping session or a three Lego session where you flesh out the acceptance criteria. I see some teams will actually go down to producing given when then. Some teams will just leave it at the example level. Uh, when you come to implement a story, uh, you've got you'll either you've already fleshed that out into a, a cucumber scenario or you flesh it out just from the the concrete example with some real values. Uh, the step definitions is where Serenity comes into play. So as soon as you start to automate that, all of your step de- definitions will be, be basically, rather than calling Serenity directly, they'll be calling Serenity tasks or steps. So if you have given Matt was, uh, has five books in the shopping cart, uh, then your Serenity step would look something like Matt dot has five books in the shopping cart in a fairly fluent form or Matt has the following books in the shopping cart and you list them depending on how much detail you want to get at that level. But it's when you start to implement those, those step definitions that Serenity comes into play.
0: And and Serenity provides that fluent interface for writing the step definitions.
1: Yeah, So the fluent interface is the uh, screenplay uh, module so that does provide, yeah, that provides that fluent interface. Basically, you write uh, tasks or actions, which are classes, which are basically portable business functions that you can reuse. So you'll have a task which is uh, add books to the shopping cart or a task which is check uh, sh- checkout shopping cart. And lower down, you might have a task which is search for books So you build up a library of business tasks and those tasks themselves use other tasks that we call interactions, uh, which will at some point interact with the web page. So it's basically sort of like Lego blocks. You build up your business interactions with these Lego blocks of tasks and actions. And then your Cucumber step definitions will use the high level tasks. So the Cucumber step definitions will never actually see a web driver interaction. They'll just be expressed in uh, business terms. So you get that nice layering. Basically, we use the uh, uh, task action or role task action model. So an actor needs to uh, perform a particular goal. to, To perform a goal or achieve a goal, the actor is going to have to perform some tasks. And within those tasks, the actor is going to perform some actions or interactions with the system. And so you have that at least three layers of uh, of abstraction to which does, goes a long way to making the cucumber step definitions more maintainable
2: yeah it's so much better than just a page a page object it's so much more problem domain focused than a page object um it's It's interesting because the code base that we've been building um, we've evolved. Like I think independently, I don't think any of us had really got our heads around serenity at the time. Exactly the same model as as you have in there of having these different actors to represent the the different people that were performing a a role within the scenario, um, and then uh, actually I don't think we'd yet modelled the tasks and actions that they're carrying out as different objects. I think they were still just uh, methods on those those roles. But I think the idea of having those two things in your in your step definitions, like the the things to represent the people who are acting in the scenario and uh, things to represent what they can do, it's a really, really nice way of abstracting your test code in the scenario. Every language should do it.
3: Absolutely. Hey, I have a que- kind of an off-topic question. What's the longest scenario you've seen? How many steps?
1: Uh... I've seen, so I'm working on with one client that has a very complicated workflow system and it's basically stepping, uh, sort of shunting a, uh, a record or shunting a, uh, uh, a client folder or whatever through the workflow. And that's got, there's one with four or five step, high level steps in that workflow, but each step requires... Uh, a dozen or so smaller steps so yeah you're getting up into 60 70 steps in all.
0: yeah i tend to avoid the long ones because they tend to be fragile it's about who's going to read it afterward isn't it who's going to read 60 60 given when then and and be able to understand what's happened i completely agree
3: i'm actually working on a little uh cucumber linting tool they will uh, warn you about these
1: things. I hope I get it up <laughs> soon. <laughs> that could be very useful.
2: I remember asking you this in Sydney, John, but um, do you have anything online that people can, like Where's the best place for people to go to just learn about Serenity, if they're just interested in the idea and the patterns that you've been talking about today, even if they're not Java developers?
1: The uh, starting, the start is the Serenity BDD website, so serenitybdd.info. Everything forks out from there, so that's got articles and ref uh, links to uh, both the technical side and the non-technical
0: side. Great. Well, thank you very much. Um, thanks for your time today. It's been really great chatting with you. Thank you. See you at QCOP, John. See you in a few weeks. Yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely. Come down from the cold to the slightly less cold. <laughs>
0: Uh, So thank you very much for listening today. Um, If you would like to subscribe, you can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud. Uh, The links will be in the show notes. Um, Thank you very much. We'll see you next time on the Cucumber Podcast.